the most common analogy is finding Tupperware in the woods. It's a worldwide game, which is what's so amazing about it. It's across so many different countries and on every continent, but it's a real life treasure hunt. Welcome to the Adventures with Grammy podcast. I am your host, Carolyn Barry. This podcast is for grandparents on the go with their grandchildren and for parents who want to ensure loving relationships across the generations. I welcome your input and your feedback on every episode of the podcast we produce. Please send me an email at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com or connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Grammy Adventure. Please follow or subscribe to my podcast. It's free so you won't miss an episode and ask your family and friends to do the same. You can subscribe to the monthly newsletter by visiting my website, adventureswithgrammy.com, and clicking the newsletter sign-up link. Travel approximately five miles due east of where I live, and you will discover the Chesapeake Bay with its many inlets and tributaries. Just the sort of waterway pirates in the 17th and 18th centuries navigated with the intent of discovering and burying treasures. Fast forward to today, those of us who live near the bay no longer fear pirates, but we still navigate the area discovering and burying treasures. We're playing a game today's guest describes as hunting for Tupperware in the woods. It's geocaching. Amy Tilk, the host of Geocache Adventures, a podcast about geocaching, will give us insight as to the game's origins, its worldwide popularity, and why it's a good activity for grandparents and grandchildren. Welcome, Amy. Please tell us a bit about you and why you enjoy geocaching. I'm full-time mom and a full-time engineer at Boeing. And almost seven years ago, I, I first heard about geocaching. And it just sounded really interested to me. Treasure hunt. What person as a kid didn't think about, oh, go find pirates and all that. It, it was intriguing to me and sounded fun. I created my free account and I had, my son was a couple months old at the time. And I thought, oh, you know, great family activity, go out, get some exercise. My husband was not at all interested in it. <laughs> he had no desire to even go try it. And I didn't even really know what I was doing and didn't really want to try it with a two month old infant. <laughs> so just scrapped the idea for a while. And then when he was five, I was just trying to figure out something new to do with him. And I happened to remember, oh yeah, there was this geocaching thing. I wonder if that account is even still active. And sure enough, it was. So I pulled it up and we started doing it. And I I just really enjoyed it. So I just kept doing it. And he still does it with me. Now that he's a bit older and I can give him the phone and say, okay, you navigate to it. He's all into doing that when he gets to have the reins and kind of guide us and tell us where to go. It's a lot more enjoyable for him. So he'll do it with me some. He is almost seven. I have been thinking about doing geocaching with the boys for quite a while, but never took the time to introduce them to it. They all love Pokemon. So we have these Pokemon Go accounts Mm -hmm. and they love of when we go places to turn that on and to see if we can find the Pokemon spots and get the points. So because that is such a big hit, I think it's time that I can introduce them to geocaching. Yeah, it could be a good segue in between there. The 
big difference between Pokemon Go and geocaching. It kind of depends on the area that you're in. When you're Pokemon Going, they just constantly pop up on the map. Geocaching, depending on your area, you may have a limited number of geocaches in that area. So sometimes you may have to look ahead of time where you're going on the map and see if there's a lot there or if maybe there's may just be one or two. It can still be a lot of fun. It's just how long is it going to keep their attention? I figured we would present it as a real life treasure hunt as opposed to a cartoon geo Pokemon Go. <laughs> and that's that's we'll a great see. way to do it. In my area, at least, I have found that uh, most of the parks have one or two caches and most parks will have a Pokemon stop or a gym. So it can be a, hey, let's go do the treasure hunt and then we can do Pokemon Go afterwards if you want to. For listeners who have no clue as to what Pokemon Go is or what geocaching is, can you tell them about this? Sure. Well, Pokemon Go, if anybody is familiar with the Pokemon cartoon, these little creatures in the cartoon, the goal is to go catch all the Pokemon and to then battle them. And it was a Nintendo, I think, Nintendo game years ago. And they have it now on a lot of the games, Nintendo game systems. They have different versions of the Pokemon game. So they may be more familiar with that. Geocaching is, like you said, it's a real life treasure hunt game. You have hiders and finders and you can be both. You can hide a geocache and find geocaches or you can just find geocaches. It's really on how you want to play it. People hide different containers and they can be anywhere from as small as a pencil eraser to as big as I've seen photos of ones that people have taken shipping containers and turned into a geocache. The size varies greatly. And if you get on Google or Pinterest and you just Google image, you know, just search images of, of large geocaches or geocaches or creative geocaches, you'll be able to see a variety of different containers. Most of them tend to be the smaller regular size. So think, you know, like a softball or ammo can shoebox size. People go out and the most common analogy is finding Tupperware in the woods. People hide these little containers. It can be, yeah, it can be in the woods. It can be in an urban setting. It's a worldwide game, which is what's so amazing about it. It's across so many different countries and on every continent. And people hide containers and then you use the GPS satellites. You can use your phone. There's an app. You can use, most people just use their smartphones with the app, but you can also use a handheld GPS if you like doing that. And the, you pull up the map, either online or on the app, and you see all these little circles that are the geocaches. And then you can use the GPS to navigate to the area. And when you get to the area, which we call Ground Zero GC, which is basically the, the main area that the cache should be hidden within here, you start searching. Because the GPS, while it's highly accurate, you still have about a 10-foot discrepancy. So you could be off plus or minus 10 feet, depending on how the GPS and the clouds and everything are that day. So it's really important when you get out to where the phone says you're there, put the screen down and start looking around. And these That's containers have anything from just a simple log that you, you take it out the piece of paper and sign it with your geocaching name to say that you found it. 
And then you can log it on the app as well to say that you found it and it'll keep track of the ones that you found. And the bigger ones often have what we call swag, which stands for stuff we all get. And it's a trading system. So you have little trinkets or pretty painted rocks or little toys, and you can trade other items to get those items, which is something that my son really loves to do. He, he calls them the toy caches. He wants to go find those ones that have swag that he can trade out in them. So you bring something and exchange it for something that's already in this box. Yes. Now, not everyone has stuff in it, but some of them do. And it, I have found anywhere from pennies to, you know, beads to Hot Wheels, uh, painted rocks, keychains. A lot of people like to make their own swag. So you'll see bracelets, little necklaces, keychains, all kinds of things. Just about anything can be swag. There's a few rules about swag. Um, no liquids, no food, um, no medicines, cough drops, anything like that. Basically, keep it family friendly. Keep it PG. Because it, it is a family-based game. So we, we want everybody to be able to enjoy it. So we don't want kids coming up on a cache and finding some not nice stuff in it you know or you know the thing about food is if you leave candy or stuff in it it's going to attract animals and bugs liquids can leak and leave a mess in there so and if you google it you you can look it up on geocaching.com and google it for more information it, it states examples of what not to leave and things to leave but really it's just kind of like little trinkets little toys most things are very inexpensive and just fun little things that kids can swap out or even adults can swap out. But if, yeah, the big rule is if you take something, leave something. I happen to think geocaching is really exciting. And I, I think it's a wonderful activity that grandparents and grandchildren can do. That it's a way of bonding and working together for a common goal. I would encourage grandparents to start doing this and at least investigate what it is. And then see how it goes and take it from there. I agree. The great thing about geocaching is, well, one of the things I love most is it's the places that you discover in your own area that you may have never known about. We have discovered some different parks and monuments. I had no clue was in the area and I've lived in this area most of my life. So when you lived for some place for 30 years and you didn't know that was tucked back there in that corner and you've driven by it. You don't know how many hundreds of times. It's pretty amazing to go, oh my gosh, this, how did I not know this was here? If a grandparent is listening and decides, ah, this is, ex this is exciting. This appeals to the adventurous side of my grandson and me. How do they get started? What's step one for them? It's fairly simple. Go to geocaching.com. And you can sign up for a free account. Now there's the free account and there's what they call the premium account. The premium account is $30 a year and it has some additional search filters and some things. When people hide a geocache, they can choose to make it a regular or a premium cache. So you have to have that premium membership in order to find the cache. But if you're just starting out, I recommend start with the free account. Make sure it's something you're going to enjoy. And then if you want to upgrade, you can always upgrade later. 
So once you create the account, you can search for geocaches on geocaching.com on the computer, or you can install the app on a smartphone and it works with both Android and Apple. So that's not an issue. You can install it and then you'll be able to log into the app and you'll be able to see the map and see all the things in your area that are available. And there are different types of geocaches. The most common one is the traditional, which is your container that will have a log and maybe some trinkets or something in it. But there's also other kinds. So you have what's called a virtual cache, which will take you to a location and it's not going to have a container to find. It's the idea is to take you to see something that's there and then to claim it, you'll answer a question about it or maybe post a photo or something. So that's one great way to explore your area is these virtual caches or what they call adventure caches, which is similar to a virtual cache. Only a virtual cache will have like a series of, of, of typically about five locations that it'll take you to, to. These will just, instead of finding the physical objects, it takes you to locations. And sometimes it's sculpture, sometimes it's a historical monument. It's a great way to explore and go to areas and they're also great options for people who may not like finding the container so much to go find those locations. Like my husband does not care for geocaching, but he likes when I take him with me and we find those virtuals or those adventure caches because it's something that he can enjoy too versus just walking through some trees looking for a lock and lock Tupperware container. So there are different options if the kids don't seem interested in looking for a box, you can check into these other types of geocaches and help you explore your area and give you some other options of things to do. I never knew about the virtual, the adventure cache. That sounds even more exciting. <laughs> They're a lot of fun. And that's another great thing. If you're on a trip and you want to do geocaching, if you go to really anywhere, but especially a big tourist area. If you go to St. Louis, if you go to Memphis, if you go to Atlanta, you're going to find more of these adventure caches and these virtual caches. And they will usually take you to some neat tourist areas. You can do it real fairly easily on vacation and hit your tourist spots and not necessarily, you can combine the two. You don't necessarily have to go miss doing the tourist activities because you want to go get a geocache. Do these virtual caches take you to little known places in the touristy areas? Sometimes it's a little known place. Sometimes it's a well-known place. Like one of the most popular ones in St. Louis is the St. Louis Arch. If you're going to St. Louis, it's pretty well known the St. Louis Arch is right there. But you can still go and say, oh, I want to go see the arch. Well, you can go see the arch and get a geocache while you're there. Last month at the end of May, we went to an event in Kentucky. And then we were going north to Indiana to see some family. And on the way up, I just pulled out my phone because we were looking for some place to stop along the way just to take a break and stretch. And I pulled up on my phone and in, I think it was Jasper, Indiana, which isn't a huge town, but you know, not super small, but not, not major. They had this, it was called the Geo Grotto. And it was like this shrine area that they made out of rock geodes. And it was amazing. And we were stopping in that area anyways, just to grab some lunch and take a, a rest break. And we got to make a neat detour and see this amazing place that we wouldn't have known of otherwise. 
So it can help you find things like that in areas that you're not so familiar with, but it can also help you explore areas that you are familiar with. One of the things that you should check out is search for the different types of geocaches and read about them. So you kind of have an idea of what they are, and that'll help you decide which ones you want to go try. So in addition to these virtual adventure caches and the physical finding the Tupperware box, tell us about a couple of the other ones. Another one is called a multi-cache, and it's similar to the traditional cache in the sense that in the end, you're going to find the physical container, but it has you start off at a different location. And a multi-cache can be anywhere from two different locations that you have to visit to I've seen one that had 10 locations that you have to visit. And the idea is you start at location one and you'll gather information that'll take you to the next location. And then when you get to the next location, it'll tell you you're either, depending on how many points there are, you keep collecting information to get to the next point and then eventually find the physical container at the last location. So it's like a scavenger hunt. That one's a little bit more like a scavenger hunt and they, they can be very interesting, but they can also take a lot longer to do depending on how many points there are. So if you have younger kids with you, you need to keep that in mind to see if it's going to keep their interest. Cause if it takes five or six trips to get to the final location, you might lose their interest or they might get tired. It really just kind of depends on, on the kid that you have with you. I mean, it's, that's one thing to really keep in mind when you're geocaching with kids. There is a difficulty and terrain rating for every geocache. And they rate from one to five and they go on half points. So one, 1.5 to 2.5. And the difficulty is how hard it is to find the cache when you get to the area And the terrain is how difficult of terrain it is. So is it flat paved? Is it hills? And you can get more information on that at geocaching.com. But that's something you want to keep in mind when geocaching with anybody is what are their abilities going to be and what is the difficulty and terrain ratings of the geocache I'm looking for. Because if you have a five-year-old with you, you may not want to go find a 5.5 rated geocache that may be just a little too much for them might actually be a little too much for grandma too (laughs) yeah and there's attributes assigned to geocaches that you can look at when you're looking at geocaches and those attributes are important to look at because they will tell you things like is there parking nearby is it kid friendly do you need special tools in order to do the geocache there's a whole bunch of different attributes and again you can find information on the attributes at geocaching.com So those attributes are really important to look for too, because they will help you decide if this is something you want to go do or not. You mentioned you can use your smartphone in this app, or you could actually use a handheld GPS. Yes. Do you need special equipment or is a smartphone really the big ticket? For most geocaches, the smartphone is plenty. Your smartphone... Your, your smartphone, and then something to write with because you're going to want to be able to sign that physical log that's in the physical container when you get there. Other than that, it just kind of depends. And again, that's where the attributes come in because sometimes there will be a special tool required depending on how they hit it. And the attribute should mark that. And if you read the cache description, most of the time it will tell you if a special tool is needed. And a special tool can be anywhere from tweezers to 
tree climbing equipment or scuba diving equipment. I mean, there are geocaches for every level of physical fitness and adventuring that you want to take on. So there are actual geocaches that require boats or scuba diving or tree climbing, but there's also just geocaches where you can go to the park and find a geocache in the tree line or go to a parking lot and find one under a lamppost skirt. There's a geocache for every type of person out there. Then there is another one for if you have anybody that has a physical handicap, there is a attribute to indicate if it is wheelchair accessible. So that's another thing that you can keep in mind when you're looking for this kind of stuff. The attributes will give you a lot of information. So this is really something grandparents should plan ahead for. You don't want to just be driving down the road and decide, oh, let's go geocaching. You probably should plan an outing and as a grandparent, research this ahead of time before actually embarking on this trip. I would say it, it would probably depend on the age of the kids that you're with. If you're with teenagers, they might just be like, let's just go do it. And you can just read the description and look at it on the app and decide if you want to go do it. If you have younger kids, it's probably best to do a little prep work ahead of time, kind of plant, look at the area you want to go to. You can, on the app, when you select the geocache, it'll pop up with the information for that geocache and you can read the description, look at the attributes and decide if that's something that you want to do. And you can create lists in the app. So you can make a list of geocaches. If you, you can name the list, whatever. So if you want to call it Sunday outing, and you found five geocaches that you don't want to forget what they were, make a list and save those five geocaches to it. And then you can pull your list up so you remember what they were. So that helps you plan ahead a little bit more when you're doing something like that. Um, Another thing that you want to keep in mind with kids is look at the sizes of the geocache, especially with small kids. Micros are not very fun for them. (laughs) The first one or two they might be okay with. And these micros, they're if you're familiar with the bison tube or like a small pill tube, that's what a lot of these are. And there's some that are really tiny and there's some that are a bit bigger and those can be harder to find. And small kids are not always so excited to find those in my experience. They usually want to look for a smaller, or regular, large if possible, but usually I would go no, no less than a small, especially starting out just because you mean the actual container is the container small, size. like a little tube? Okay. Yes. So the in the description on the page, when you pull it up in the app, there'll be the, the difficulty and terrain rating, and there'll be a size rating. So the sizes go from micro, small, regular, large, and there's an unknown rating. So the micro is really tiny, usually about the size of a quarter or smaller. And you might read in the description, somebody calling it a nano. Nano is an unofficial subcategory of micro. And that's, that's when you're looking at maybe the pencil eraser size. They get really tiny. The small. Oh, is I don't used, think I would. <laughs> I don't care for those myself, really. If you look on the website, I believe the official classification is that, and there's, depending on who you talk to, you'll hear different comparisons for sizes but I believe usually around like the film the 35 millimeter film canisters that you used to have that and below is usually a micro 
And then a nano would be like the quarter or smaller subcategory of micro. The small is kind of think of like a, a apple, a medium sized apple or a baseball. And a lot of times what you'll see is like a, a vitamin bottle or old prescription bottle that somebody has used, at least in my area. Or another popular one is like the Altoid tins in some areas. People love to use the Altoid tins for those. And then the regulars, that's more like the shoebox size or the old metal ammo cans. And then large would be anything bigger than that. And the unknown one, that's usually attributed to like the virtuals will have unknown assigned to them because there's no physical container or there's a, what's called an earth cache, which is kind of like a virtual, but it takes you to go look at like a geological specimen of rock or cave or anything. And that'll be listed as unknown or people hiding the geocaches can list it as an unknown if they want to try to make it a little more difficult or if they have an unconventional creative cache, it doesn't really necessarily fall into the categories. I have one that I have hidden that I have marked unknown because I created a bird's nest and I put some plastic eggs and a 3D printed bird in it. And then I have attached my, my bison tube to that nest. So I marked it as the unknown size because, you know, wh while the container that the log is in is small or micro, the whole thing, the nest and everything is part of it it didn't really exactly fall into a category in my opinion. So I marked it with the unknown. That sounds like a lot of fun to find the unknowns. It can be. When you have the small tubes, how in the world do you, how is there a log inside? How can you? Basically it's it? just a piece of paper rolled up. So you open, if anybody, if you're not familiar with a bison tube, um, you can Google image it. Often they're, they're used as like little pill tubes for like a daily pill container. People will just roll up like a strip of paper, like maybe about a half inch wide or inch wide, and they'll roll it up and they'll actually, you insert it into the top, into the cap, and then put it into the tube and close it. And the reason people do it that way is it prevents the paper from getting caught in the threads and binding up when they're trying to put the cap back on. But a lot of people don't uh -huh. know to do it that way when they first started out. I, I probably, I did it wrong. I don't know how many times before I just happened to see something. I don't know if it was on Pinterest or Facebook about how to properly put a log back in a bison tube. And it just completely blew my mind. It's like, how is this not more commonly known? <laughs> oh, fun. What is the most interesting geocache you found? It's hard to pick because I have found some pretty typical geocaches that have taken us to some pretty interesting places. And I have found some interesting containers. So probably the most interesting container I have found was, so in this area of Missouri that we're, that I'm in, there's the big conservation area that's all over is called bush wildlife. And in this one area in bush wildlife, there was this tiny little historic graveyard and just outside the graveyard, kind of on the backside of it, somebody had made a little tombstone out of wood and the top of that wooden tombstone came off and the container was inside that. So I thought that was pretty that neat because it was pretty different. <laughs> yeah, it was different. And then it fit there with the, 
location. Another neat one that I found was it was a multi-cache, but it was at a library. So the first stage was under the lamppost skirt. And for anybody that doesn't know what I'm talking about, if you look at a lamppost, there's usually a metal box around the bottom and those typically will actually lift up. When I lifted it up, there was a little container and it said, go inside and search. I don't remember the, the author, but I, I wrote it down. I went inside and I searched for it and it took me to the reference section where they had a geocaching book by this author and there was a pocket inside the front of the book on the, it was a paper cover and it had a pocket they attached there that you pulled out a piece of paper and signed the log to. That's pretty interesting too. Yeah. There's, you're really making me excited about doing this with my grandsons. <laughs> it can be a lot of fun. A lot of times it, you know, it just depends on your area and it depends on the type of cache. Reading the description of each geocache page really helps you kind of decide it. It's really valuable to read the descriptions because sometimes they will tell you, hey, you're looking for this type of container or it will tell you, hey, you're going to want to park here and then go this way because otherwise you're going to have a lot of trouble getting there. There can be all kinds of different information or they may just be telling you why they place the cache there because sometimes people place geocaches in areas that mean something to them and then they'll share that information for you. So, and sometimes there's not much in the description page, but it's always worth reading the description. And then there's also a hint typically. Now, not every geocache will have a hint, but a lot of times owners will assign a hint to it. So read the hint, especially when you're starting out, read the hint and that will say something like, you know, and they try to be cryptic with it. I have one that is actually one that I have hidden that is a magnetic key box on the other side of a bench at a park. So the lo- it takes you, the pin takes you to the location and then the hint is have a seat, trying to hint at, <laughs> take a look at the bench. So sometimes the hints are a bit more cryptic. Sometimes it's literally the hint makes, you get to a place and the hint says, look, under this or something it just depends on the cash owner or the CEO, which is a term that's usually used to abbreviate that. One thing that you will find is that there are a lot of acronyms and terms in geocaching, and it does take some time to catch on to some of them. But again, you can Google geocaching acronyms and you'll find lists that people have compiled to help you find the most common ones. Are these geocaches, are they always on public property? I mean, do you have to worry about going onto somebody's property? So the rule when you hide a geocache is you should always ask permission before placing the geocache. So typically it's in a public area, but even then you want to get permission from, you know, the, the parks department or, you know, the grounds management at whatever place you're looking at, or if it's, you know, in a parking lot under a lamppost skirt, get permission from the businesses that are responsible for that parking lot. It's very important to get permission because it does take people through these areas. And especially if it's a business owner, they need to know why people may be traipsing around out in front of their store. So it's very important to get permission. Some geocachers do not. And I actually did have an instance one time and it was at a golf course at the front of the course, before you actually started golfing, there was like a a little 
a tiny little pond with a little bridge to like a itty bitty island in the middle. And there was a container under there. And my son and I were finding it. And while we were there, one of the employees there came out and he said, Hey, how do we get a hold of the person that keeps putting that there? Because they don't have permission and we keep removing it and it keeps getting replaced. It's like, oh, <laughs> okay. So that they were very nice to me about it, but they were just concerned about the liability on their end if somebody got hurt trying to find the geocache. So they didn't actually want it there. I flagged it for review to the reviewer and flagged it as I even put in my my log when I found it of, hey, they said this does not have permission to be here. And I sent the owner of the cache a message saying, hey, I was told this. And eventually it was archived and removed. So it's no longer there to find. So it's very important that if you you are hiding a cache, get permission first. So it should be okay for you to go wherever the geocache is. In theory, you have permission to be there looking for it because the people that own the property or are aware of the property know it's there. If I want to hide something, within a, the first step, of course, is getting permission. But what do I have to do if I want it to actually hide something? The first thing I would do is decide what type of geocache you want to hide. If you go on to geocaching.com, they have a page you can search about hiding your own geocache, and they'll have some additional information about requirements for hiding it, because there is a minimum distance that's allowed in between geocaches. They have to be at least a tenth of a mile apart. Some other things like that, that it'll just kind of give you information on. There's a little video you can watch just to get the very basics of it. Depending on who you talk to, you will get a different answer about how many geocaches you should find before hiding one. Some people will tell you 50. I've heard 100. The official guidance from Groundspeak, which is the company that owns geocaching.com. They recommend you find 20 geocaches before you hide one, but it's not a hard, fast rule. So you could technically hide a geocache before you ever found one, but it makes it a better hide if you have an idea of what you're actually looking for and doing first. So I recommend before you ever hide anything, go find some geocaches, maybe try some different types, to get an idea of what you like to find and then hide the type of geocache that you would want to find is my recommendation to anybody, whether it's really creative container or you want to put something in a really awesome place, hide something that you would enjoy finding. Once you get all that figured out, you go onto the geocaching.com website and there is a page for you to submit your hide. And you put in the type of cache that you, you, whether you're making a multi or traditional, whatever the type is, you'll put in the coordinates that you need. You will write your description page and your hints, and then you will, it will be submitted to a reviewer. The reviewers are actually volunteers. They're geocachers that Groundspeak has asked to, hey, would you help us with this? So they're actually volunteers, these reviewers, and the reviewers will sort through And they'll look at your location and make sure it meets all the rules. And they'll read your description and they'll say, hey, we need more information here if something's missing. If it's all good, they'll approve it. Sometimes you go back and forth a couple of times to get it all flattened out. And once they 
say, okay, everything's good. They release it. They basically, they publish it and then it becomes public to everybody to go find. Now it, it is pretty straightforward and it can take a couple tries back and forth to get the information just right. And sometimes you may have to actually change the location that you were trying to hide it for one reason or another, because it didn't meet the proper requirements. Like there's one that says we don't want it within 150 feet of a playground because you don't want people tripping over it and finding it. And sometimes you may actually have to go, okay, I can't put it here for whatever reason. So I have to go find a new location. But most of the time it's pretty straightforward. And, and if you are not sure of why your hide has been rejected, the reviewers are all really great. You can just message them and say, hey, I don't understand why this happened. And they'll help you understand it so that you can figure out how to place the hide correctly. Because what you don't want it is for it to be out in the open where just anybody finds. Correct. So in geocaching, much like Harry Potter, we have muggles. So the non-geocachers are muggles. And you don't want your cache to get, quote, muggled, which means somebody finds it and doesn't know what it is and carries it off or it gets damaged or something because people are messing with it because they don't know what it is. There's a template that you can print out on paper and include in your geocache or laminate it, however you want to do it, that basically says, hey, congratulations, you found a geocache, whether you meant to or not. And if you don't know what geocaching is, this is what it is. And in some places... The property owners or the grounds management will require you to place that in the geocache in case it does come across by somebody. How disappointing to go someplace to find that it's been vandalized and carried away by a muggle. It does happen. And one of the logs, when you're logging a geocache, you can log it as found or you can log a DNF, which is did not find. And that's one thing to keep an eye out for when you're geocaching is if especially on the lower level difficulty ratings. If it's a level two difficulty and you have five DNFs before you go find it, there's a good chance that it could be missing. Now, if it's a level five difficulty and there's a bunch of DNFs in between finds, that's kind of hit or miss because did they not find it because it's just that hard or did they not find it because it's not there? And even when you're starting out, if you can't find it, don't be embarrassed to log it did not find. It's actually very helpful to the cache owner because if people are logging, every time somebody logs a geocache, whether they're logging it as found, writing a note, or marking it as they did not find it, it sends an email to the cache owner with that log. So if they start seeing multiple did not finds, it's a flag to them to they need to go out and check on their geocache. Is a, a really well thought out system. It started in May of 2001 and it's been around for 20 years and it has progressed quite a bit. And I have talked to some geocachers that were around in the very early years. And it's interesting to hear about how it has changed in the last 20 years. When it very first started, it was all done over like internet forum boards. Eventually they created this website and the apps came out and everything's more organized. Literally when it first started, you might have 10 in a state to now you may have 10 in your backyard. Basically it's, it's amazing how it has grown and how many people are playing it. It's something like 20 million geocaches worldwide have been hidden. It's pretty amazing. 
all kinds of questions and comments and excitement is just whirling through my head about this. <laughs> I'm really eager to get started with it. Are there any resources that would be for grandparents that they could read that's something simple and direct for those of us who want to get started and feel a little overwhelmed with all of the information on the website? There are some books out there that you can get a couple of like guides to geocaching and stuff. I have not read those, so I'm not entirely sure how helpful they would be. But there are a lot of actual geocaches out there that write blogs and create YouTube videos. So it could be helpful to read about some other people's experiences and watch some videos. And if you even just Google how to start geocaching, something will come up. There's Facebook groups. There's one Facebook group called Geocaching 101 that is, it really is targeted for beginner geocachers and helping beginner geocachers. And I have been in that group. I have seen plenty of people post in that group. For the most part, everything that I have seen at least and been a part of has been very respectful and very helpful. And in general, most geocachers that I have met have been very helpful and very kind and they're really eager to help you learn more about geocaching or talk geocaching. So you can get on Facebook and see there may be even a local Facebook group for your area about geocaching. And you could get on there and say, hey, I, I'm new to this. I want to try this. I have kids with me or whatever. Can somebody recommend some geocaches to start with? And I guarantee you somebody's going to post on there and respond and say, hey, this is a great one to go check out. Can you summarize like five things that grandparents need to know in order to get started or just need to know about geocaching? Well, you're going to have to create the account at geocaching.com. Make sure you always bring a pen or pencil to sign the, ge the physical log because be there are actually, I don't know how many are out there, but there are actually some geocache owners that will check the physical log to the online log. And if you didn't sign the physical log, they'll delete your online log. If you're going to trade items, take some items with you to swap out. And a great way to do this is either have the kids make some bracelets or keychains or take them to like the Dollar Tree or some other place and buy some little plastic dinosaurs or go through the party section and buy some little party favors. And letting them help pick it out is a great way to get them involved in it. I would say for a great way to get your kids involved in it is kids these days, a lot of them are all about getting to use that screen. So letting them use the phone and help navigate to places is a great way to get them engaged in geocaching. And they get that screen time, but you get them out of the house and get them doing something else. And then I would say the most importantly, just have fun. Don't stress about it too much. If you didn't find it, okay, yeah, it's, it's kind of a bummer. But just move, don't let that get to you. Keep trying, you know, and maybe you can come back to that one another day and find it again and just have fun with it. And whatever type of geocaching you want to do, there's a geocache out there for you to find. I really appreciate your time today. Well, I appreciate you having me on here to talk about this because I, I enjoy it very much and I'm excited to get to share this 
with you and your listeners. And I really hope some of you all go try it. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode of the Adventures with Grammy podcast. You will find the links to our guests and the topics we discussed in this episode's show notes. If you would like to be a guest or if you know someone who would be an awesome guest, please connect with me at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com.